0: This is episode 5C of Free and Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And
1: I'm Bradley Kuhn.
0: This is Free as in Freedom. So
1: we are going through a series of shows where we want to talk about some basic concepts about free software, uh, mainly as, as reference material for, for people. that There are always new people c- getting involved in free software and don't know a lot of the history that, frankly, is not really well recorded.
0: I think also, I don't want to overpromise, but I'm going to look into getting some of these uh, topics certified for, um, CLE credit.
1: Okay. But we can't promise that that's true now. I can't promise (laughs) that
0: that's true now, but I'd like to cover these topics that are of general interest, um, uh, for people coming into free and open source software and generally for lawyers who want to get interested in this area for, um, developers who, um, who are curious about licensing.
1: Yeah, and the reason we talk about licensing is because uh, the licenses that are used for free software really are the embodiment of the beliefs and views of the people working on the software as far as how they want it to be put out into the world. Uh, it's, It's really an accident of history in a lot of ways that the primary system that governs software is copyright. There are other systems that govern it as well. <laughs> um, but the primary uh, sort of first issue you have to deal with is do you have permission under copyright to do various things with copies of the software? That's the first question you end up having to ask uh, when you are given a copy of software, simply because it's covered by copyright.
0: Right. And um, and the, the genesis of free and open source software was in constructing licenses that allow for uh, the sharing and modification um, of software. And so the entire body of free and open source software is predicated on the legal concepts and the licensing around free and open source software.
1: And and, it, and it's, it's strange because often people criticize, uh, particularly people who've been around the community for a very long time, like Karen and I have, as, as having an over- um, zealous focus on the issues around licensing. And I think the reason that's developed uh, by those of us who've been involved a long time is that it is such a threshold matter. When you get a copy of software, it's in a form uh, fixed in a tangible medium to to quote uh, what copyright law talks about. And therefore it is an expression governed by copyright, because it's an expression uh, fixed in a tangible medium, i.e. on a disk or something like that. So when you get a copy of the software, you immediately have to ask the question, if you want to be acting in a legitimate fashion and not infringing somebody's copyrights, you must ask, do I have permission under copyright law to engage in activities that are governed by copyright law uh, with regard to the
0: software? Right, and copyright law grants monopoly um, so the copyright holder gets exclusive rights to choose, you know, on the exploitation of that work.
1: Let, let's dig down on that a little bit, Karen. So, so when you say it, it's a monopoly, like, what do you mean when you say it's a monopoly? Because I think a lot of people think, well, first they're going to think uh, monopoly is a monopoly is a board game. Um, <laughs> then they're going to think, well, if they, once they think about it a little bit more, they're going to think about like the Sherman Antitrust Act or mm-hmm. some other type of uh, like antitrust, you know, you acquire a bunch of companies and you get a monopoly on the market or the, the card game pit, where. You try to you know you trade cards and you try to corner the market on barley or something like that, right? So there's a lot of concepts and particularly for non-lawyers about what a monopoly means. So I think a lot of people when they first hear that copyright's a monopoly, they're surprised. So what do you mean when you say copyright's a monopoly?
0: In this instance, it means that the copyright holder has the exclusive right to decide what what rights that it that it is willing to grant that. He or she or they or it is willing to. <laughs> um,
1: Corporations are people, my friend.
0: <laughs> so, um, so under the Copyright Act, if you have a copyrighted work, um, things like, uh, the, uh, publication of the software, um, creation of a derivative work, um, basically anything that you might want to do with, um, with software is all Governed by copyright law and if you want to do any of those things you need permission from the copyright holder in order to do that And usually that means that the copyright holder enters into a license with you. So for major software companies uh, Issuing proprietary software sometimes you'll see those licenses um, as uh, you know Popping up on a screen when you uh, when you start to use some software, um, those are also often terms and conditions, but there are license terms contained in those often enough. Um, sometimes they're negotiated by one big company to another. Um, mm-hmm. In the old days, we had shrink wrap licensing as a much more common uh, licensing well, term. Before we
1: get into that, so so when you're talking about a monopoly, you're talking about when when, when I sit down. And write a piece of software. So so I start typing source code into my text editor. I'm writing some software. Um, What you're saying is that because I'm the copyright holder on that, I've written it, um, the government has granted me some sort of monopoly.
0: Right. Under copyright law, you don't have to do anything in order to have copyright. Simply by writing the software by, as you said, fixing your creative expression in a tangible medium.
1: Which uh, putting on a disk is is considered a tangible medium.
0: medium. Uh, You are the copyright holder of that code and you get to decide how it's used.
1: So how to use that means that um, that means that even uh, I would say, I should say how it, it's exploited, okay. exploited. So, but that's that's interesting to say exploited because exploited is a term you usually hear in European copyright systems. Is it is it similar Actually, to yeah. U.S. systems? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I just mean, curious. I mean, some
0: people do use that term.
1: Okay, so so because 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 uh, I'm very U.S. biased, obviously being from the United States. And so so the interesting thing about when I've talked about copyright about software is really when you look at the statute. Uh, so so you got read the law or the copyright law. Um, it talks about uh, a few specific activities that are governed. Now tell me, did right you, you read the
0: Copyright Act from beginning to end or just piecemeal?
1: I at one point read the entire, the, I forget which section it is. I don't remember the section number, but the entire section that's copyright from beginning to end a long, long time ago.
0: Okay. Okay. So he read it from beginning to end. I've only read it in sections. I mean, I took Uh, I I, I took my copyright course in law school, (laughs) but uh, but I only read it. it Yeah, I've
1: I've reread the software section many times because I'm always going back to it. And the key things that it governs for software are we usually abbreviate them in free software to talk about them: uh, copying, modifying, and distributing. Um, now, modifying is its pre- preparation of derivative works is actually how it's said in the statute, but g- generally that's how we tend to talk about it. I wish
0: it. I had the statute open. I I didn't, well, I didn't reread it
1: oh, yeah, prior a, to the <laughs> recording of
0: this episode. We're talking about basic stuff, so I didn't... Uh,
1: yeah, the, de- the details, I think, of what the, I think people should read this. I always encourage people to read the statutes. Uh, you while, should
0: always go back to the code.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But but when we talk about in free software, what you'll often hear people saying is the... the, the and it's kind of a rough approximation that works worldwide, generally speaking, that your copyright license, the the permissions that you give, are the permissions governing copying, modifying, and distributing. Uh, And much of free software is an answer to the default uh, in copyright. Because in the the default, when I get this, when I type into my text editor and I get this monopoly, this monopolistic control on who can copy, modify, and distribute the work, the default is.
0: Right. Another way of saying the monopoly is all rights reserved.
1: Right, which means that the activities that are governed by copyright law for software, roughly speaking, copying, modifying, distributing the software, may not be done by anybody except for me, Mm -hmm. by default. So even if I hand you a disk with that software on it, if I don't give you a license, you're prohibited under copyright law from copying, modifying, and distributing that software if I haven't given you any license.
0: That is a potentially more complicated if you've handed it to me for what purpose and why you would have handed it to me.
1: Well, right, you can maybe run it on your own computer, right. kind of thing, but right. that's not the. And and actually, there is a there is a few cases actually that talk about. It the... the uh, they oh, talk, they,
0: everything with lawyers.
1: Well, they talk about exhausted. Freaking like,
0: lawyers. It depends. Well, yeah, but the the
1: the the. I'm a lawyer. It's, it's actually newcomers. pretty well established uh, from a couple of different cases that that copies that are made transit tran uh, um uh. There's a word I'm looking for. Um, ca- copies that are made just uh, incidental to running the program are not mm-hmm. are not copies that you need to specificize. You don't need to copy. You don't need to license every time you copy a program from disk into RAM to run it. For example, there was actually a case about that. There sure was. So, um, so, but generally speaking, if you wanted to go out and start distributing that to other people, you don't have that permission. If I just if I just handed you a disc and said here's here's a disc. And I didn't give you a copyright license. You can't go sell that work. You can't modify it yourself. You can't. But what if
0: I've paid you for a piece of equipment, and you're giving me that software along with it?
1: But I didn't give you a license to the software.
0: You didn't give me a license to the software. Why wouldn't you do that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I'm talking theoretically. <laughs> I no, would, I know, of course. I, know. I would, but and this is why. So, so if you heard in our community uh, that this has been, uh, I say it's recent, but it's actually been for the last three or four years. There's been an incredible uproar about GitHub and the fact that the default on GitHub is no license, and there are people in our community. I don't, I
0: don't think it is anymore.
1: Um, well, it sort of is because there's a pull down menu, but you know, the, it, it, it encourages GitHub now does encourage you to pick a free software license, but. By default, it's no license. Like you have to make an, and in some sense, as it should be, in the sense that if somebody doesn't make an affirmative act to license it to you, whether you have a license is kind of in question. Uh, So it is important to get people to say yes, I am licensing the software to you by some means, Mm -hmm. and to to explain it. So that makes sense. But there's really been. Only beginning to be advocacy uh, in uh, by by companies like GitHub to encourage people uh, to choose a free software license because there is this segment of the community that wishes we didn't have to deal with this right and and the funny part is is that the the younger folks who are in that. Realm, where they're like, well, oh, I just am sick of all this licensing talk all the time and I don't have to think about licenses. We all felt that way. Like, I mean, I felt that way 20 years ago. The reason I became a free software licensing expert was because it, it matters and the policy questions matter. And whether or not you have permission as a most basic threshold level is really important. Do you have the permissions to copy and modify and distribute the software? Uh, that's what a license fundamentally gives you. That's the, always the first step that you need.
0: And it cuts both ways because if you decide that you're so sick of it and you don't want to have to deal with licensing and therefore you're not going to choose a license or recommend that somebody choose a license, then that means that there's uncertainty surrounding what you've created. It means that no one knows whether they can use it or not and for what purpose. And because there'll be so much uncertainty around the work, people are more likely to avoid it. And by not explicitly saying that people can use it for anything, it means you probably are giving the message that people can't use it for anything.
1: Mm-hmm. And there are um, so what what's happened is is that over over the many years uh, of uh, free software existing, uh, I mean the first free software systems go back to the the earliest uh, BSD software that was developed. Uh, there ended up having to be a court case about that to figure out whether it really was free software, uh, which you can read about. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and the parts of BSD eventually were released as free software, which was good uh, after much uh, wrangling. But the goal there uh, was to make that free software. And then there was also the early GNU project uh, done by the Free Software Foundation to, to release free software. Uh, and over time, what's happened is uh, uh, basically two organizations have really tried to codify what it means uh, to create A free software or, in the other one's case, an open source license. So the two key places that you want to look at when you're analyzing, does this license actually fit with the community norms that are considered open source and or free software, you want to look at the FSF's uh, free software definition, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes uh, for this show. And you also want to look at the open source initiatives, open source definition. Uh, Those documents are very different in the way that they're drafted, but they're generally trying to reach the same goal. They're trying to codify what rules you should apply when you analyze a license to ensure that you're given all the key software freedoms to the people that you license that software to.
0: So to back up a a step, because newcomers um, may have only heard the term open source, so uh, there are two terms used to describe... um, this kind of software with software freedom. Um, There's open source software, and there's free software. And the definitions of free software and open source software, as are codified in these two places by the Free Software Foundation and the OSI, are... Almost entirely overlapping.
1: Well, it's it's interesting. So so um, this is kind of a, a, a almost a, 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 categ- a categorical uh, problem uh, to think about. There's there's actually a word in philosophy for the type of problem this is, but I can't think of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I wish I had that kind of uh, kind of uh, those kind of words. Uh, but there's there's a word in philosophy. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, I guess, of, of, <laughs> of, of, of when you're trying to codify a system uh, and understand it. Um, and that's what that's what both those organizations are trying to do. And what, what's happened is the class of what they're trying to describe, I think if we look back historically at both organizations, they were trying to dest- describe the same class of software, mm-hmm. um, but they did it in very different ways. And it caused some weird anomalies historically. So, um, it is... It, there are some oddball licenses that have historically been declared as open source licenses, but are not free software licenses. Um, there are no known examples of something that was declared a free software license, but is not an open source license. Um, but I, I think for those who are not New to this and don't want to think about it, you you can probably ignore those few outliers that are the basic licenses that almost no one uses. So that you, you, yeah. you the odds you'll encounter software under those licenses is near zero, um, very very close to zero.
0: So pretty much, if someone is saying open source, mean, they mean the same thing as what well, in describing licenses.
1: We should be ca- we should be careful um, about I'm that. I'm
0: getting I'm getting to because
1: because the term is not trademarked. Neither term is trademarked actually. No, neither free software nor open source. So it is possible. I think, and common these days to see people open calling is something not not
0: trademarked.
1: Not not at all. And and so you, it's very common to see people calling things open source that are not open source. And. Uh, historically, calling them free software because of the confusion of free as in price versus free as in freedom, which is this classic English problem of the adjective free. Lots of people will say it's free software, meaning it's zero-charge software. You'll find Karen and I tend to prefer the term software freedom for this reason. I would talk about software that gives you the core freedoms that are important, uh, the freedom to copy, share, modify, and redistribute the software, and try to say it in a little more detailed way. But you do have to be careful. And this actually goes back to the fundamental point we were making a few minutes ago, that knowing what the license is matters. You have to ask when somebody says here's some open source software, your first question really needs to be great. Which license did you choose? And that license should appear on the FSF's list of known free software licenses and on the OSI's list of known open source licenses. If their license doesn't appear on those two lists, there's probably something fishy going on.
0: I'd agree with that. And- um, I. This made, I, I, I think I would be remiss to not say that the um, that the terms open source and free software as applied to license um, is is one thing and the OSI agrees that OSI open source official open source licenses are freely distributed and are free software. And I think the FSF would generally agree that free software well, Okay. I just just thought yeah, myself yeah. right there. But, so so so, but
1: people—the reason we're we're spending so much time on this is people are going to encounter rhetoric from from lots of different people about right. these issues. Uh, the
0: point I was I was getting at was that um, that embodied in those terms are different attitudes about software, different you know historically different ideas about why this is important. Where open source has traditionally been associated with um, commercial efforts, and where uh, free software has traditionally come out of a, is more of a social movement, mm-hmm. and so. While there's no real distinction that's easy to describe between free software and open source software, and uh, because both terms are a little bit in, in, inadequate, you know, free sounds like free is in price. Open sounds like you can review but not necessarily modify the source. Um, I often I say for newcomers, free and open source software because that has both, <laughs> both together and software freedom. Um, but there are very strong ideologies at work in both of these things. And, um, and sometimes if people come to you, um, especially for lawyers who are new to the space and they start using one term or the other, they may mean something else than simply the licensing. They may mean, um, a development model or they may mean, um, an ideology.
1: And so, to to wrap that ch- that chapter of discussion up, I, I think the question you want to ask is: Is somebody presents some software? You should ask what its license is, and you should check whether that license gives you the freedom to copy, share, modify, and redistribute both commercially and non-commercially. And those two lists that we mentioned, the Free Software's uh, Foundations uh, list of free software licenses, the OSI's list of known open source licenses, is a great uh, uh, handbook to look. Both of them are great handbooks to check to see if that license has been vetted uh, by the various different agencies that that, uh, interpret, is this really giving you those freedoms? Now, note that Karen brought up commercial activity, and I just mentioned both commercially and non-commercially. That's actually a very important principle that took some time historically, for those of the interest in the history of it, to develop in the software freedom community generally. Um, There was debate in the 1980s about whether The freedom to operate commercially was an important freedom to have and ultimately the community came to the conclusion that yes, uh, basically commercial entities and non-commercial entities ought to be treated equally under open source and free software licenses. That became an essential tenet, that if you're making money with the software or you're doing it altruistically, the same rules should apply to you. All, uh, everyone should be operating under the same rules. And, and that,
0: and that the, having true software freedom means you can use the software for any use. So you, a, a, a true free, free and open source software license will not restrict any class of use
1: and you'll find if you if you look at debates in the community there's there's a long history of people wanting to insert other social cause, social justice causes into software, which I'm admittedly sympathetic to. So, for example, there was a huge push in. The, it actually, it's perennial. It comes up every every you know, five or six years. Someone will raise again. Hey, maybe we should put a clause into our licenses that prohibit uh, incorporation of this technology or software into military products or something like that. Or, or pick your favorite cause, right? And 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 write a clause of the license that prohibits that particular use. Um, uh, and this is why the osi uh specifically uh talked about field of use uh issues in the open source definition because that that was particularly when that uh framework was uh created that was that was a big issue and it still comes up every once in a while that people say well I want to do that and, and basically the community came to a strong consensus that if we even though many of us support various different causes we all kind of support different outside of free software we have different interest areas and and the idea of trying to marry all these different causes together such that you had these complicated licenses that well okay so I'm a mil- I, I sometimes do military contracting therefore here's a whole class of free software I wouldn't be allowed to adopt. The idea that, that we get that kind of uh, uh, sort of forking of our community into all these different types of restrictions was, was pretty much decided not to be permissible and would, would hurt the idea of general software freedom.
0: So the restrictions on, on use either by, uh, by the type of activity or by who's using it, um, imposition of any of those restrictions would be considered non-free.
1: That's correct, and and yeah, so they would call that uh, OSI would call that not open source. Uh, FSF would call that non-free.
0: So I'm curious, how many classes you would say we would uh, categorize the basic uh, the the basic number of classes that um, that are contained in free and open source software.
1: What do you mean by classes? Like how many
0: uh, basic kinds of licenses? Well, so, some of you might say two, you might say.
1: Right. So, so, uh, before, so, so to transition to that, um, I think it's a good question. It's a very good question. Uh, I think the, um, the, the, so, so we talked in the beginning about how there's a, po- a certain policy, um, component to free software licensing. Uh, I've always argued that the free software licenses, uh, that are used by projects are really constitutions of their community. They're, they're laying out the basic framework of rules that that community wants to follow and you'll find that within the realm of things that are considered free software so if you think of kind of a Venn diagram where you say well there's this whole class of possible software licensing and some proper subset of that is going to be free software licensing I think you're asking Karen within that once you get into that Venn diagram what are the subclasses that we could draw Mm -hmm. inside that of types Mm -hmm. of free software and, and, I mean, I think you could draw it a lot of different ways. I mean, you Venn could. diagrams can often be drawn in I guess ways. I was
0: asking you how we were going to draw it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
1: I think it, it, the, the thing is, is that one of the problems we've seen in educational materials about uh, free software licensing is that there's so much shared knowledge uh, among the experts in this field uh, that… It's, it, I think it's con- very confusing for newcomers when they come and try to just understand the basics of, of open source and free software licensing. So I think handing people two simple classes makes sense to me. Uh, I, I, I don't know if, Karen, you're going to agree to that, but I think just telling explain to people there are copyleft and non-copyleft is the easiest way.
0: That's what I was going to do. And I was worried that you were going to take issue with that. I, I don't think for,
1: as, as a, so I, I once had a computer science professor um, who, who told me that as you go through an undergraduate education, in computer science, your professors lie to you every year and they <laughs> have to lie to you. And it's only your last semester senior year where they can stop lying to you. Um, and the reason that he said this was that there are approximations that you have to make when understanding new material uh, that aren't strictly true to the expert in the field, but because there are exceptions and there are nuances that that can't be understood by a first-year student and a second-year student and so forth. And you got to get to grad school before you can start looking at that kind of nuance. And I think the same thing happens to lawyers as well. In any particular area, they they have to have these initial approximations to understand the generalities so that they can have the basic knowledge to dig down one level deeper. Um, So I think as a first approximation saying non-copyleft and copyleft makes sense. Um, So we should probably go to describe what Copyleft is, right?
0: Well, right. So um, so copy left is a um, it's often described as a hack on on copyright law. Copyleft is using copyright laws, but uh, to ensure the sharing and freedom of the software going forward. So the basic idea under Copyleft, which I think I can easily say was invented by Richard Stallman.
1: I think that's correct.
0: Okay. Uh, so the basic idea under copyleft is that you, um, you license your work under this license and you grant permission. For anyone to use the work, to modify the work, to redistribute those modifications, provided that if they do modify the work and distribute those changes, they do so under the same license. Mm-hmm. So detractors have called it viral, um, so you may have <laughs> heard yeah, that that yeah, was actually I, I, before I, viral marketing became a positive thing, So, um, uh, but I think of it more as like a snowballing effect, and people often refer to it as forever free, mm-hmm. because it means that while there are improvements to that software and those improvements are Distributed, that uh, those improvements must also be under a sharing license. So the body of work is ever growing.
1: So, um, because because I'm the I, so I am I'm, uh, I'm the editor in chief of a website uh, called CopyLeft.org, which is a site that's goal is to talk uh, extensively about CopyLeft and help educate people about what CopyLeft is. Uh, so it, it has a definition of CopyLeft on it that we put up there uh, that was adapted actually from the original definition, on Wikipedia. We've actually contributed the changes uh, to this definition. So um, in the interest, I, I won't. It's only a few sentences, so it won't be too boring. I'm going to just go read the definition because I think it's it's well formulated. Uh, definition of copyleft. So the definition reads, copyleft is a strategy of utilizing copyright law to pursue the policy goal of fostering and encouraging the equal and inalienable right to copy, share, modify, and improve creative works of authorship. Copyleft, as a general term, describes any method that utilizes the copyright system to achieve that aforementioned goal. Copyleft, as a concept, is usually implemented in the details of a specific copyright license, such as the GNU General Public License or GNU GPL. Copyright holders of creative works can unilaterally implement these licenses for their own works to build communities that collaboratively share and improve those copylefted creative
0: works. And so, CopyLeft is a cute way. Uh, the name is a really cute way because instead of uh, of the work being licensed under uh, classic copyright licenses, which restrict what uh, what uh, users and developers can do, CopyLeft grants permission. So it's uh, it, it takes copyright but uh, uses it to spin it on its head and to use it for sharing.
1: And, and so and, and how this differs from non copyleft so the, so I talked about the historical BSD community, which is really probably the oldest uh, free software community uh, to exist, um, and then the GNU community, which is a, a heavily copyleft uh, um, centric uh, uh, community um, so so the, the, the difference there is really one of of whether the license attempts to ensure the same types of sharing continue downstream as people improve and change the work. So it's a great example to think about the BSD project, which uh, was an initial project that created a lot of the computer networking technology and and software that is in use today. And they released all of that under a non-copyleft license. Now, this meant that that could be very quickly and widely adopted, even by those who did not want to share in software freedom. So you'll find, for example, the BSD's uh, TCP IP networking stack in lots of different products, including Linux itself, as which is a copylefted program, but in plenty of proprietary systems from Microsoft and Oracle and whoever might make proprietary software. Uh, so one of the classic trade-offs is a question of whether you want the software to be extremely popular and utilized in places that don't necessarily hold the same values, or if your goal is to protect the software freedom of everyone so copyleft came out of a mentality of if i'm going to write this free software and contribute it to the world and, and copyleft came out of a very well it permits commercial adoption commercial incorporation and use uh it's uh comes out of a very uh, altruistic community saying if i'm going to put the effort in to create this work altruistically to share it with the world to try to make the world better uh, by sharing my software i want to make sure that everyone else also has to share their software when they make improvements and changes. And copyleft utilizes copyright law to make that happen.
0: In the early days, um, especially, there were people who were adamant that the forever free provisions of copyleft licenses were, in in their view, restrictions because you couldn't use um, copylefted software uh in proprietary software.
1: You couldn't incorporate it you into could, right you
0: couldn't you couldn't modify it and keep those distributed it. and mm. keep those changes closed. Um and so they considered a freer license to be a BSD style license or a, you know, some people people also call them permissive licensing, um a non-copyleft license. Um and so it was an ideological choice, but many of those people who were very um uh, adamant and, um, outspoken about their support of non-copyleft licenses have, um, have changed their minds, um, in part because they've seen code bases that they've contributed to, uh, closed up and they don't have access to their own code because they worked for an employer and didn't have the rights to contribute, um, to later versions of, of things that they had written. Um, there, are, there, are, uh, actually, we might get into this later, but there are a lot of, um, security reasons and other reasons why people who had previously been very, um, active in, uh, and advocating for permissive licensing are now more, um, more active in, or actually, um, av- advocating for copyleft.
1: So, as you can probably tell, Karen and I are both very pro-copyleft people, uh, and therefore we have a lot of strong feelings ideologically about why copyleft is better. Uh, I think Karen's right to point out that uh, there are people who are ideological on the other side. They feel that, that non-copyleft is so important as a principle that they, they fight for it. And and, there's, and these are really differing philosophies within the same free software community. Well,
0: I would say, well, the reason where I was going with that was in part that when I started out, I I, because of my, my clients were on both sides of the camp, I actually wasn't so pro-copyleft originally, but it's only over time that I also have become very pro-copyleft.
1: Um, but the, the, the important thing to keep in mind as if, you, uh, if you're if you a newcomer looking at these uh, free software licenses um, is to understand that, that when developers make an informed choice about their licenses, um, they're usually choosing them for a very good reason. Um, it's common to find software where people just randomly pick the license because they heard somebody else said it was a good I mean, that happens in all aspects of life where people just do what everybody else around them is doing and don't think about it. But you will encounter uh, in your work, if you work in this area. Uh, people who have strong opinions about why they chose specific licenses. And and there are, there are nuanced opinions at a level deep we're not going to get into today between different types of copyleft licenses and different types of non-copyleft licenses. People disagree about various different things uh, within that – within you know once you get down deeper in that Venn diagram and start saying, well, what are the different categories of copyleft licenses? What are the different categories of non-copyleft licenses? Within those camps, there are people who have different arguments about why their license is better than the other. Um, so 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 it's it's important to keep in mind that most people doing open source and free software um, are doing it because they believe in a goal, a policy goal in the world they're trying to achieve. And they're picking their licenses uh, to, to push forward that goal, at least when you talk to individuals who choose licenses.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that open source as an idea for, um, for especially for startup development, um, it's something a little bit different. And I think it's that because there's so much useful software under free and open source software, you know, under under free licenses that you simply can't get to market fast enough if you're not going to use a lot of free and open source software. So if, if you want to create an effective product that you can move quickly on, you have have to use a lot of free and open source software, regardless of, um, you know, it may be lower in your stack, but it, you're definitely going to be using it, so it's sort of considered a, a standard thing. And then there's still a, something of a cool in it, and companies try to advertise that they use open source software to sort of attract developers and make it sound like their product is a little bit more ethical.
1: Yep. And, and, that's, and that's actually, the, I, I would guess that uh, our hope is for this particular episode of, of our show, uh, that we're going to be drawing in and, and, refer, and people will hopefully someday be referred to this show as a good introduction. And so if you're coming new to this, you're probably coming to all this because you're now working for a company that wants to be an open source or they want to get these benefits of, of being cool because they've done open source things. Um, and the reason I bring up the fact that many of the individuals involved have, uh, have beliefs about this is because of this popularity that has come. There are companies that are interested in benefiting from the the ideological uh, bent that individuals have about it as a way to put that as part of their messaging. It's, it's like, I often compare it to companies that uh, want to say, we're a green company, we do things environmentally sound. That's a thing that companies like to do now because it connects with people who care about the environment. What's happened in open source is very similar. Companies are adopting uh, the rhetoric and the sometimes even the licenses of open source because they want to connect with. They want to be a green company in in our in our world. They want to be a company that's uh, doing with the uh, the ideological bent. But you have to ask the question. I think those. uh, I think if you're a reasoned person, you'll ask the question. Are we really? Is our company really doing that? Are we committing to this as a a principle, or are we? I'll I'll use the word exploiting uh, this ideology to market our products I and thought I thought your
0: think, word was gonna be co-opting.
1: Well co-opting is me. I, I can't I, I couldn't figure out what, what what sounded worse. I I don't <laughs> want to turn newcomers off, right? Because because I if you're a newcomer who's just getting involved with a company that's gonna do open source but you're not really sure how, I don't want to turn you off and say we don't want you. I think we do want you to get engaged. Um, and I think that that helping your company understand that these licenses are ideological choices and and that you will be part of that ecosystem, where uh, that ideological ecosystem. Um, You may be a good part of it, you may be a not-so-good part of it, depending on the choices that you make as you get involved. And you have the opportunity, I think, as as someone who is getting involved in this to influence the places where you work about their policies regarding this.
0: Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of... um fear, uncertainty, and doubt about uh, free and open source software licensing, and especially about copyleft and the GPL from the early days, um, where folks said that no one in their right mind would ever use a copyleft license for um, a commercial enterprise, um, and it simply was shown to be not true. So if you're new to this space, you can look historically and you can see, um, and in fact, most major businesses are using uh, a significant amount of copylefted software. Um, it is a significant portion of the software that is used in commercial enterprise. Um, and so people will try to scare you off using uh, copylefted software um, and and pressure you potentially to um, put a premium on non-copylefted software slash permissive software. Um and they'll do that um in part because it gives third parties more power going forward. Um but but having copylefted software and commercial enterprise are completely um they they, they can completely go hand in hand.
1: And so I, I, want, I want to, I want to wrap this up by, by talking really briefly uh, about the, the question of compliance. Because if you've come to hear about copyright and licensing and open source and free software, you've probably already heard somebody say the word compliance. And the reason that that gets talked about is goes back to what we started with, which is the copyright system gives the authors a monopolistic control over how the software is licensed. And every free, so- well, I shouldn't say every, I should be like a lawyer, it depends, but <laughs> but almost every free software license and probably every one that you're gonna encounter, every open source and free software license doesn't just give you the permissions to copy, share, modify and distribute the software both commercially and non-commercially. It certainly does give you those permissions Permissions, but it also has some requirements. The most basic requirement that you'll run into, and almost every license has this, even the non copyleft ones, is a requirement of attribution. You have to give attribution to the copyright holders that uh provided the work to you. And in fact those attribution requirements are more extensive if you choose to proprietarize the software because you often have to copy the copyright notices into some documentation or something like that to let your customers know that you've incorporated, say, BSD software into your product. And so there th- across the board are going to be requirements that you have to familiarize yourself with. There is a plethora of materials out there discussing these kinds of topics. Uh, Karen and I have focused most of our work on copyleft compliance. Uh, so I've worked uh, as the editor-in-chief of copyleft.org, which has this uh, guide, a thing we call the guide, uh, the guide to copyleft that's on copyleft.org slash guide uh, that you can look at. Uh, and I, I think that if you want to learn more about copyleft, copyleft, we can do that. You can you can look at that, and if you want to look at uh, at, at non copyleft compliance, I, I I think there are also resources out there about that. The most important resource, of course, is to read these licenses.
0: Yes, especially the um, especially the uh, the non copyleft lax permissive licenses are very very short, and I I think that uh, GPL v two in particular is a, a really interesting read um, for both developers and lawyers alike. Um, I think that GPL V three is a little bit harder to read, but uh uh but it's still it's still worth worth your while to read it. Both uh GPL V two and GPL V three, uh that the Vs are referring to versions, are um are both very much in active use. Um, I think that uh GPL version two is still uh one of the most popular free software um licenses. Um Another very popular free and open source software license that you'll have heard of is the Apache software license, which will come up a lot. Um, and it is in the, um, in the non-copyleft permissive camp. It is a, um, a permissive license, or some people would say lax permissive license, uh, which also has a patent provision in it. And that's the, the distinctive thing about the Apache software license.
1: So to, to switch from this Venn diagram way of thinking, I often, and I'll, I'll put a, a in the show notes for this uh, for this episode, I'll put a, a link to the, the I, I apologize for my drawing skills, they are not great, uh, but you can see a little diagram that I drew. I tend to try and explain all these licenses on a spectrum uh, when you go from non-copyleft to copyleft. I, I actually think a sphere would be a better model, uh, but again, we're trying to make things one step a little more simpler uh, for people uh, getting introduct- introduced to this. So think you can think in terms of non-copyleft being on one side of the spectrum where you have licenses that have almost no requirements at all. They just grant you the software freedom to copy, share, modify, and redistribute the software and place virtually no restrictions or requirements of any kind on you. And then as you move to the left, I, I tend to do it to the left on, on that, on that <laughs> well, spectrum. Well, it is called
0: copyleft. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's true. Um, you you get to more uh, to more uh, copyleft uh, requirements and other types of requirements so if you think about moving along that spectrum you start with the highly permissive licenses like the isc license and then you get into the things like the bsd license where they do have an attribution requirement like we were talking about so then you do have a compliance um, requirement to make sure that you have the attribution right then you move into the licenses karen was mentioning most recently, this this Apache license where there's a patent provision involved. So it's a non-copyleft license, but it has an attribution requirement and it has certain provisions related to patent policy uh, that that have been shoehorned uh, together with the the copyright permission uh, for the work. And as you continue on that spectrum, you get to what we call the weak copyleft licenses the uh LGPL is the most common the lesser GPL or the lesser general public license uh is probably the most common weak copyleft license we would as we would call it um and then there's various other ones in there there's the Mozilla public license which i i tend to consider weaker than the lesser GPL depending on depending on your point of view uh you could you might disagree or agree with that and then you get as you go further into the spectrum, the strong copyleft licenses like the GNU GPL, the General Public License or the Afero General Public License, which is probably the strongest copyleft license uh, in in circulation today.
0: And what makes these what makes a uh, what makes a, a license uh, effectively copyleft are the requirements to distribute the source um, when you're distributing um, the software in a product, um, which is real shorthand. Um, it's it's a it's a real abbreviation for an oversimplification of what the requirements are, uh, but uh, but what we're finding now, and I think this is important in an introductory session, is that um, for security reasons, companies are more and more interested in making sure that they have the source code to the products that they are, that they're purchasing, they're purchasing services from vendors or software development from vendors. So if you're in-house at a company or if you're an engineer at a company that is bringing in software from a vendor and that some of that software, whether it's under a copyleft license or not, requesting that you have the complete source code for that product is essential for dealing with the security vulnerability down the road. So if you've distributed a product and you've relied on software from another company, you don't know where that company is going to be in the long run. You don't know if they're still going to be in business and you don't know if you're going to have a good relationship with them. So requesting that source code is the best way that you can protect yourself so that you can respond to a security vulnerability when it happens. Now, the part of why... I'm a, a copyleft advocate is because I think that this is very important. and the um, the strong copyleft licenses take care of this for you, provided that when you notice that you have received software that has um, copylefted software in it, you request the source code to make sure that you exercise your rights under your license. And I think that this is the the, the biggest lesson that especially we could give to in-house counsel is requesting, the complete and corresponding source code along with the script control installation is going to be an extremely important part of ensuring safety for your company going forward
1: and i want to dig down on that a little bit about regarding the issue of complete corresponding source code That ends up being an important component of copyleft licensing for software that's often really confusing to those who are non-lawyer or lawyers getting involved with it who who aren't uh, software developers uh, from a a previous career or something like that. And the reason is, is that, is that what's happened with copyleft licenses for software is that a, a series of technical requirements, highly technical requirements have been incorporated into a copyright license. So you have this system whereby the license is requiring certain things to assure software freedom, to ensure your right to copy, share, modify, and distribute the software, but to make effective use of those freedoms, you need certain technical details. And the reason this is the case, and I apologize to those of you that are software uh, developers that that are going to find this incredibly uh, oversimplistic, but the basic uh, commonality to most software distribution uh, when software is distributed to someone is that it's put into a form, a binary form, that makes it difficult to modify. So if your goal, as the policy goal of a copyleft software license is, seeks to encourage improvements and modifications in the software this is basically an unacceptable situation the people downstream whom we wanted to make sure when they got a copy of the software got the right to modify and improve it they end up getting a binary form that doesn't allow them to modify an improvement as karen points out doesn't allow them to do security audits easily and all sorts of other uh, problems of that nature The licenses actually incorporate, at least the copyleft licenses do, technical requirements with regard to providing what we call the complete corresponding source code to those binaries that are distributed. So when you find, as a most common example, an embedded product that includes Linux, Linux is under the GPL version 2 you have to ensure if you are selling this product on the marketplace that you have provided everyone who received that product the complete corresponding source code to Linux uh, because GPLv2 required that you do that and as Karen pointed out it's not just the complete corresponding source code uh, in, in sort of a layman speak uh, but the license specifically lays out what that has to include and it says for example the scripts used to control compilation and installation of those binary executables also must be included. So there is a real technical uh, set of details that anyone trying to ensure compliance with a copyleft license needs to go through. This is in some sense why copyleft licenses get attacked, as Karen was mentioning, get called uh, bad names and so forth. But the policy goal, and obviously my somewhat biased view, uh, was correct. The policy goal was to ensure everyone who got a copy uh, got software freedom. The authors having their monopolistic, uh, control were allowed to set the rules that they wanted. And so they set rules that require that would ensure that policy goal was reached. And those rules are enforced and created by the fact that the copyright holder of the work has the right to choose the terms and whatever details they want to put into those terms, they're allowed to. If they've chosen to put copyleft details in those terms, the, choice you have is comply with the copyleft license or do not engage in activities governed by copyright law with regard to that software. Um, and so and so from my point of view, it's it's a, it's a completely reasonable trade off. Uh, g- copyleft licenses give you a lot more freedom than any proprietary license on the planet, because they give you these rights, but they do have these extra requirements uh, reaching towards those policy goals.
0: Yeah, I think companies often overestimate the value of their copyrights or of keeping their software proprietary. Um, as a critical part of their business model. There definitely are some companies who rely on royalty licensing in order to keep their uh, company afloat. However, if you're a company that's relying on royalties, um, relying on uh if you if you're a company that's relying on locking people into your uh licensing or software, you're not gonna have a very long term business model anyway. What people wanna pay for are services. What they wanna pay for is are updates to make sure that they've got uh, security patches when there are problems, to make sure that uh they have new features that they're uh that the software is customized for their usage. Uh, generally, what we found in the development of the technology industries are that, in fact, what we're selling is not software at all, but everything around the software, which is consistent with the ideals of free and open source software. So, um, you know, I think what we've seen is copyleft software getting lower and lower down the stack, I think out of a conservative fear um, and a lot of um, over-cautious decisions by uh, in-house counsel, um, And uh, and, and an overzealous um, aggression by VC companies to try to protect everything they possibly can so that there's something to resell at the end of the day. But all of the good businesses that last for a long time are completely consistent with sharing your software and your source code. And in fact, it protects your customers and will probably make them more loyal in the long run.
1: So, I, I want to uh, spend a few minutes uh, talking about uh, how these licenses operate in practice in, in a real specific way, uh, which is, uh, it turns out, who the licensor matters, uh, and I would never have incorporated this into introductory material, uh, say, 15 years ago, when I, when I first started talking extensively about uh, open source and free software licensing, or in those days the term open source didn't exist, so it was just free software licensing, <laughs> um, but but the reason I, I tend to include it even in an introduction now is uh, simply because the way copyleft is sometimes used um, is confusing to people. I have met many people who have been first introduced to copyleft uh, from a licensor who didn't necessarily have the altruistic goals that traditional copyright holders like those of the GNU project had uh in choosing copyleft and that has created a tremendous amount of confusion has actually fed the the uh the 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 disinformation about copyleft in the marketplace uh, and what it's basically changed in how you have to think about it is you have to think about who the licensor is and what do I mean by that well the copyright holder, as we talked about uh, throughout, has this monopolistic control. They can decide the rules for copying, modifying, distributing, and that means that when you run afoul of one of these licenses, when you fail to, in the non-copyleft case, give attribution when you were supposed to, or in the copyleft case, when you fail to give complete corresponding source code when you were supposed to, it's the copyright holder who then has a claim against you. Uh, uh, there have been other folks who have tried to shoehorn other legal frameworks on top, and I'm actually very interested in that as a as kind of, it's kind of exciting, advanced topic in our field uh, about oh, can we de- enforce copyright licenses with with other systems like fraud or, or or consumer rights laws and so forth? And and that's an experimentation area that, that's ongoing. Uh, but as a, as a fundamental threshold matter, the key entity or individual that has a claim against you is the copyright holder. And you actually do these days, I admit, have to consider who the copyright holder is of the software that was licensed to you because how they act in, um, in an enforcement action that may come against you if you fail to comply is going to be very different. Um, and the example I've, I've traditionally used, um, because they're, I guess, easy to, easy to beat up on, um, is, uh, is MySQL AB. Now that was a company, uh, that licensed their work, a database under the GPL and they did this uh, very early somewhat early in the history of of software and they chose to keep all the copyrights themselves and offer proprietary licenses as an alternative now now why why would that be possible well um the the gpl and all free software licenses are what we call irrevocable licenses you can't take back the rights you gave under that license so once you put software out there in the world under some free software license it's actually a core principle that the license not be revocable you can't come around later and say nope you have to stop activities governed by copyright law regarding the software today because uh because i say so you can't do that with a free software license but what you can do When someone violates, if you're the sole copyright holder or have the sole license or rights to that work, you can say, well, actually, I'll sell you permission to do things that my free software or open source license didn't allow you to do. In the case of a copyleft license, if you don't want to give your customers complete corresponding source code, you can pay me some money and then... You won't have to do that GPL requirement anymore. You will get a different license other than GPL from me. And this, uh, much to my chagrin, became a relatively common business model used by uh, many startups today and was traditionally used by MySQL, being now now part of Oracle, who continues to use that business model. Um, The problem with that business model is that the licensor has an incentive to convince you not to operate under GPL. They want to find cases where you've made a minor uh, mistake with regard to GPL and then come down hard to get you to buy proprietary licenses and I, I put this in introductory material now simply because it's so common that the first time someone interacts with a copyleft license is through one of these licensing regimes that was not what copyleft was originally designed for and therefore I feel it's kind of necessary to educate people at the first step that this might be happening to you there might be some company that we didn't even heard of when we recorded this that that is now using this business model and has come to your company and said, aha, I caught you violating the Afero GPL or the GPL, and now you have to pay us a bunch of money. Uh, and the reason, wh- the reason you got in that trap was because you were incorporating software into your product that was uh, from a sole licensor who happened to be a for-profit company who wasn't necessarily interested in the fundamental policy goals that Copyleft was designed for.
0: Right. I would also say that sometimes people find a need to educate themselves because they are, uh, they've been approached with a, a legal threat by uh, Actually, this is more advanced, I'm not going to mention it here.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I, think, I think that one, one, one part, I, I think I know where Karen was going, and I think the one part we should mention um, is that uh, we, uh, where Karen and I work, we work for an organization called the Software Freedom Conservancy, um, and in conjunction with the Free Software Foundation, the same organization we were mentioning earlier, publishes the free software definition and the free software license list, we publish in conjunction with them a list of principles about how to engage when someone fails to comply with copyleft licenses. And the reason we published those principles was to really to distinguish um, the types of things I was just talking about with with the 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 moral and and kind of policy goal that CopyLeft's generally trying to chase.
0: But so- you'll see in that document that um, if you take a look at, and we'll link to it in the show notes, um, the that in the principles we basically show that uh, uh, the basic that that they're an effort to show that that someone who is not in compliance with the license today. Is tomorrow's contributor that, um, that in fact, the community's reaction and response to, um, a lack of compliance by a company, um, in free and open source software is to ask them to comply and to help get them educated towards compliance. So if you're listening to this because you want to get your company into compliance, this is, uh, this is exactly what, uh, what we are, are focused on helping and supporting. So check out the principles and you'll see things like, um, uh things like uh, uh, encouraging um enforcers to use confidentiality to help companies to come into compliance things like um Bradley is, uh, is is not is well, I,
1: I don't I don't know if we should get into too much detail on that folks oh, okay. can read All it right. um, and and we're gonna be doing uh, d- uh, just to let people know we're gonna be doing um, interspersed with our regular content uh, you'll find that this particular uh, uh, podcast tends to get into much into the deep details and that's why we both Karen and I have a tendency to get into those uh, because that's what our usual listeners want but our hope is that this will be a good introductory episode for those who who are new to the free software community and and legal and policy issues around open source and free software as, as an introduction. And then maybe you might want to go back and enjoy um, our, our back catalog and then our forward catalog of, of shows that have more detailed discussion about the kinds of policy issues that, uh, that come up. So I wanna I wanna close by kind of summarizing the material that, that we 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 tried to try to get across here uh for all of you. Um the first thing is is that the, the the fundamental system that you interact with uh when you interact with open source free software is usually copyright. Other regimes and systems are involved, but copyright's gonna be the primary one that you're dealing with, at least initially. Um we talked about how copyright gives you a monopoly. Uh, which is a specific control granted to the copyright holder by the copyright uh, statute that, require, that, that gives them the decision power about how others can, as you said, exploit the work or copy, modify, and distribute the work and what permissions they have in doing so.
0: We discussed what copyleft is, and we talked about the two major classes of licenses of copyleft and non-copyleft or lax permissive licensing.
1: And uh, we talked some about kind of the policy motivations that cre- that led to these two broad strokes, uh, different regimes within open source and free software licensing, namely copyleft and non-copyleft, and talked a little bit about how certain other entities have attempted to use these uh, these different systems uh, to their own ends uh, and not in the traditions uh, that they were originally designed for. Uh, but, but I want to emphasize that most of the projects that you've heard about, the famous projects like Linux and others uh, that are well known to be under copyleft, uh, were really part of that original tradition and, and are designed. Really people in those communities want you to adopt their software. Uh,
0: this is a jumping off point and is um, part of a very richly interesting, from an intellectual perspective, field Field of law and it is also a very interesting ideological um, uh, movement and so um, really I hope that you take this introduction and and from it investigate either with us or um, or elsewhere the field of free and open source software
1: And the final point that I want to reiterate that we mentioned is that all of these licenses uh, were designed uh, to treat commercial and non commercial activity equally. And if you're working with a company that wants to adopt open source and free software, you should know that the license was specifically designed uh, to encourage uh, commercial incorporation. Uh, Some of them don't allow proprietary, i.e., turning it into non open source, non free software, but making money from it was something that was really important to the early founders of this community. Who and the designers of many of these licenses. Uh, so when you hear people s- try to make a comparison between commercial licensing and open source licensing, they're already confused. Mm-hmm. And you should uh, be quick to correct them and say, actually, open source licenses are equally commercial and non-commercial. Uh, that that person saying commercial often means uh, proprietary or locked down or no source code available or something like that. They don't mean uh, commercial. Uh, and I think that's important to note because uh, the commercial. The success of free software is, is, is really created a collaboration between charities like where Karen and I work and uh, for-profit companies uh, and trade associations on the other hand, they collaborate together uh, to create this software and, and that's the non-commercial side really collaborating with the commercial side and the licenses are the constitution of that community to allow that kind of collaboration and equal footing to exist.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: And uh, a few more resources are on the show notes and on copyleft.org and uh, on faf.us, our website for this podcast. Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free as in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot All episodes of Freeism Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License.